Well, again, good morning, everyone. My plan this morning was for us to be back in John, but I had a change of heart midweek. And so I was just thinking about how much there was, uh, there was just so much more to say about the spiritual disciplines. And so we're going to actually spend one more Sunday talking about the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And um, something that Dallas, let me turn this on. Something that Dallas Willard says, if you guys haven't read Dallas Willard, you should. He, he's, he's great. He says, the spiritual disciplines are the means through which we seek God's deep abiding presence in our lives. That's from his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. We have it in our library, actually, if anyone wants to borrow it. We have a couple books on spiritual disciplines. But uh, anyway, I mentioned last week um, that we are, grow- we are either growing closer to God or we are slipping away from him. And in that sermon last week, I read another quote by Dallas Willard where he says that to reject the spiritual disciplines is to insist that spiritual growth is just something that happens all by itself. We have to work at things to grow in them, right? That's just reality. If you want to be physically fit, you have to exercise. If you want to play a musical instrument, you have to practice. I remember when I was first learning how to play guitar, I played so much that my fingers were bleeding. <laughs> but if, if you want to play guitar, you have to develop those calluses in your fingers. It takes time. It takes practice. Um, and it's the same with spiritual growth. How can we expect to be moving closer to God, growing in Him, growing in character and godliness? Godliness, which is just a fancy way of saying spiritual maturity, How can we expect to grow in those areas if we're not taking steps to grow in those areas? In fact, the Bible has something to say about this. In Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So if we are sowing to the flesh, that is, if we're engaging in sin, we're living to satisfy our own sinful nature, this this passage says we will reap corruption. Uh, We will harvest decay and death, the New Living Translation says. Sin leads to death. The worst example um, of that that I've ever known is is, um, actually Bora's old co-worker's husband who ran off with a woman to Thailand, fell into addiction, and ended up a a corpse on the side of the road. It was a horrible thing. His rotting body was found on the side of the road. That's what sin leads to. That's an extreme example, of course, um, but in some ways it's not. Sin leads to death. But if we're sowing to the Spirit, if we're living for God um, in the way that He directs and guides in His Word, then we will reap or harvest eternal life. And it's not talking about eternal life as in salvation. We don't earn salvation. The Bible is very clear about that. But as the message paraphrases um, eternal life in Galatians 6, it says, you will 
harvest a crop of real life. We will reap, we will harvest or reap true life, the life that we were created to live, full of joy and peace and purpose, if we're sowing to the Spirit. And so just like the principle that we're either growing closer to God or slipping away from Him, the same is true that we are either sowing to the flesh or sowing to the Spirit. Our natural bend is always going to be towards the flesh because we're surrounded by a world that lives according to the flesh, right? And, and we ourselves are born with that bend towards the flesh. But thanks to what Jesus has done on the cross and through his resurrection, we have the ability to choose differently. We have the ability to choose to sow to the Spirit, but it's a choice. It's not something that happens all by itself, as Dallas Willard points out. So how do we sow to the Spirit? Well, guess what? The spiritual disciplines are the means by which we sow to the Spirit. But we also need to understand that just like salvation isn't earned, what we reap from practicing these disciplines also isn't earned. It is the outcome of our effort, but we don't earn God's favor in our lives. The spiritual disciplines simply put us in a posture to receive from God. When we come with our hands open in humility, which is what the spiritual disciplines lead us to do, when we come with that kind of humility, then we are ready to receive from God. And I've heard it called disciplined grace. Grace because it's free and it cannot be earned, but disciplined because there's something that we must do. The disciplines bring us to a place where we are ready to receive from God. And I say that because if you're a disciplined person, or if you put these disciplines into practice, and you become disciplined, then it's really, really easy to, to allow pride to ruin everything. It's, it's very, very easy to say, I've earned God's favor. God loves me because I'm so faithful. I've earned this joy and this peace that I'm experiencing. I'm better than most Christians because I'm more committed to God than, than them. That's always the danger of spiritual growth, pride. And, and it's an ugly and self-centered sin that brings death instead of life. Remember, we are bent towards the flesh. Even when we're doing well, even when we're experiencing victory over the flesh, we are still susceptible to it. And, and that's why even when we're doing well, we continue to surrender to him. Um, otherwise, we, we fall face first instead of, instead of backwards because pride will eat you up just as much as any other sin. And so maybe you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I can't win. If I'm not doing well, I'm stuck. If I'm doing well, I can get dragged down by my own ego. But really, there's always going to be temptation for us to give into the flesh. Whether you're at the bottom of the mountain or high up on the top, there's always going to be temptation. Even Jesus was tempted. Sometimes we hear that or we read about that and we think, was he really tempted? He was Jesus. How could he have been tempted? 
but he was fully God and fully man. Um, in his humanity, he actually was tempted. So how did he overcome? Well, he knew the word of God, and he submitted to it. He submitted to the Father. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest, it's talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our, with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he was actually tempted, but he overcame, and we can overcome too. Again, because of what he's done for us, and also because of what the next verse says in this passage, we can go to this victorious one for help. It says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The last two Sundays, uh, we talked about these spiritual disciplines. We talked about the spiritual discipline of meditation, and we talked about the spiritual discipline of prayer. We talked about how Christian meditation has to do with filling our minds instead of emptying them, as the world usually teaches meditation. Christian meditation is about filling our minds with Scripture, focusing intently on one passage or, or just a verse or two, and really wrestling with the meaning of, of that verse, really praying it, praying it even. I remember whenever I couldn't sleep as a child, my mom taught me a verse that I could repeat over and over to help me sleep. And, and it was the King James Version, because she preferred the King James Bible. But um, she taught me, Thy will keep in perfect peace whoever's mind is set on thee. It's from Isaiah. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. And so I would say that over and over until I fell asleep. I, I didn't really understand at the time because I was so little, but that was Christian meditation because I wasn't just saying it over, I wasn't just repeating it over and over. I was thinking about the meaning and I was praying it and I was repeating it as a promise because this is a promise to us. We also talked about prayer. Last week we talked about prayer. Jesus set an example for us while he was on earth. He, he prayed to commune with the Father, to be in fellowship with the Father. He prayed because he needed direction from the Father. Jesus was fully submitted to the Father while he was on earth. And I'm sure he received guidance and direction through the Holy Spirit, but also through his times of prayer. He went to the Father for direction and guidance. And we see an example of that when he was about to choose his, his 12 disciples. We, we talked about this last week in Luke 6. It tells us that he went up to a mountain to pray, and he prayed all night. And then in the morning, he came down, and he chose his 12 disciples. He also prayed because he wanted to intercede for his disciples. And so we, too should follow this example. We too can follow Jesus' example. We need to, to pray to be in fellowship with God, to commune with him, to find guidance and direction. We, we can ask God for help, especially when we're 
reading his word and we don't understand something and we, we need help understanding it and applying it to our lives. And we need to be praying for each other. In fact, we're commanded to pray for each other in James 5. We're also told in the Bible to pray with persistence, to pray in faith, and to pray in God's will. And I believe that that happens. We pray in God's will more and more as we practice these spiritual disciplines. We will see the heart and we will see our heart more aligned and our desires more aligned with God's heart, God's will, as we practice these. And so that was the last two Sundays. This week, I'd like to give an overview of some more spiritual disciplines. I probably should have started with this sermon, to be honest, but again, my, my plans changed. Um, there's just so much to talk about with these disciplines. And, and so much that I didn't say over the last few weeks that, that I knew we, we needed to spend another Sunday here, especially since it's the beginning of the year. This is the time of the year when we're implementing new habits and we're open to doing that. And so I'll start with another one that kind of has a connection to meditation. It's the discipline of study. A lot of these spiritual disciplines can overlap. Um, meditation can definitely be a part of study. It's almost like study light. It's, it's the simplest form of study because in meditation, we slow down. Slowing down is a part of it. Slowing down and focusing um, on, again, one or two verses, maybe even repeating them over and over, maybe even trying to memorize them, making them a part of you so that there's something that you can recall at any time, something you can use in prayer. Study, on the other hand, is a lot more in-depth. It's not just one or two verses, but whole passages. And we also study when we go to solid Christian books that are based on the Word of God. The discipline of study is, is about learning, not only about who God is and what He's done, but learning to be His people. Study should lead us to reflection. Philippians 4 verse 8 says, Whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So study leads us to think about these things. I know that reading is not as common as it used to be, reading books anyway. We read, we read a lot when we're surfing the internet or when we're scrolling through social media, but think of that as junk food, whereas studying is the main course. Um, <clears throat> I feel like a lot of my analogies now are related to food since I'm on this diet with Bora, but um, stay with me. Um, if we're honest, I think we're, we're filling up on junk food. And if we're filling up on junk food, then we don't have room for the main course. And a lot of us are filling up on junk food. I think if, if we're doing that, we don't have the time or the energy to engage in the main course. And the main course is going to bring spiritual health. Whereas junk food, as we all know, leads to unhealthiness. So why are we, why are we hearing so much these days about mental health? 
our body, which includes our mind and our spirit, are connected. And when we're health, unhealthy in one area, it's going to affect the other. So when we're, we're pigging out on junk food, social media, Google rabbit holes, YouTube, whatever, um, let's call it entertainment, when we're entertaining ourselves so much that overstimulating our minds, and that's all we want to do, how could we expect to find rest? There's no rest there. There's no peace. We need to engage in things that bring peace. And the spiritual disciplines bring peace because, again, they put us in a place where we are ready to receive from God. And study is one of the, these meteor spiritual disciplines. But one of the reasons that it's also a, an important one is that, like meditation, it brings renewal of our minds. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. If Paul's commanding this, then it's a choice. It's a choice for us. We are either choosing to be conformed to this world or we are choosing to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So how do we conform to this world? Well, what is the world doing? The world is happy to be fed by entertainment. And I'm not bashing entertainment. I, I like the internet as much as the next person. But what I'm saying or what I'm asking is, where do we go for food? Where are we being fed? Do we start and end our day on our phone? Where are we being fed? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, it says, by the renewal of your minds. So how do we, how do, we do that? God does that, right? Through the, through the spiritual disciplines. When we practice the spiritual disciplines. Remember, spiritual growth doesn't happen by itself. We don't grow closer to God naturally without effort. We need to seek God. God actually says in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so when we seek God, we find him and we are transformed by him. But we have to do the seeking. Study is one of the ways that we seek him. And again, when we encounter him, we are transformed. Jesus says in John 8, verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, meditation and study can overlap, but they are very different in approach. Meditation is more devotional and study is more analytical. In study, we're looking to analyze and explain. Richard Foster has a book called The Celebration of Discipline, and he suggests that there are four steps in study, and, and the first one that he suggests is repetition. Have you, ever, have you ever read a good book and you thought, that was, that was great, I learned a lot from that book? Um, we would actually not just learn, but retain what we've learned better if we read that book a second or a third, or a fourth time. Repetition is so important because we forget so easily, especially as we get older, right? I'm at the point now where I can watch a movie 
um, that I saw maybe a few years ago and I've completely forgotten that I've seen it. <laughs> That's probably not a good thing. Um, but my point is that we are forgetful. That's why reading the Bible over and over is so important. We forget. But not only that, we often see new things as we read the Bible over and over. The Word of God is so deep that you just can't see everything the first time. You can't see everything right away. We can also come back to the Word after experiencing certain things like pain or heartache or, or joy even. The joy of getting married, the joy of having a family. And we can read that same passage, a passage that we know well, with new eyes. Um, we see things differently because of our experiences. Experience can help us better understand, and that's why repetition helps us learn. The second step in study that Foster suggests is concentration. Concentration is basically just focusing on one thing at a time. Um, if I'm reading to study, there's no radio or TV in the background. It's my sole focus. But unfortunately, in our society these days, our society values multitasking, right? It seems like no one can just sit through a movie without being on social media, being on their phone. I see that a lot in the, th in the theater, people checking their phones. But we see that in the workplace now, too. You, we need to be able to, to balance answering emails, phone calls, text messages while we do whatever it is our main job is. And so we live in a society that does not value concentrating on one thing at a time. Can I also suggest that maybe caffeine contributes to that? I feel like we would be a lot less ADHD if, if we had less caffeine, but that's my opinion. You can disagree with me about caffeine. <laughs> um, that's not biblical, I'm just giving an opinion. So we do have to be uh, anyway, we are, we are able to better understand and able to concentrate um, when we practice these, these disciplines. I realize that a lot of these disciplines are, are difficult for families, uh, especially parents of young children. There, there are definitely seasons uh, where these disciplines are a lot harder. I would say not impossible, but they do take a lot more effort during certain seasons of our life. The third step in study that Foster suggests is comprehension. When we learn to concentrate, it actually leads to comprehension. It's not just, the, it's not just truth that sets us free, but knowledge of the truth. Remember, Jesus says in John 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so as we understand God's word, as we understand truth, and sometimes books that use the Bible as a basis help us better understand the truth of the Bible, as we understand truth and know it, God uses that to set us free. Because understanding leads to, or should lead to, transformation, right? Changed behavior and attitude and perspective, even. The fourth and the last step that Foster suggests is reflection. Often as we're remembering what we've studied, uh, what we've read, and reflecting on it, 
we are led to understanding. And so it's not just concentration, but it's also reflection that leads to understanding. Jesus was sometimes not always easy to understand. He sometimes made things difficult. For example, the parables that he told, he, he really only ever explains them to the 12 disciples. And so everyone else was left to reflect and, and try to figure them out on their own. He wanted them, though, to think more deeply about what he had said and, and to wrestle with what he had said. Of course, the most important book that we can study is the Bible. When we read other books for the purpose of study, and I'm not talking about school, I'm talking about the spiritual discipline of study. When we study solid Christian books, they, they really are just opening our eyes to the truth found in God's word. And sometimes teaching us, sometimes these books are teaching us how to apply truth in our lives. And so why is it important to study the Bible? Well, like I said in the beginning, it's, it's food. It's food for our spirits. But it's also wisdom and guidance. It helps us live life well. Psalm 119 verse 9 asks, How can a young man keep his way pure? And then the psalmist answers his own question. He says, By guarding it according to your word. Or, <clears throat> excuse me, as the NIV says, By living according to your word. And then just a few verses later, in verse 11, oops, he says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So why do we study the Bible? We study it for food, but we study it to be transformed. We, we learn about who God is and what he's done. But in learning and seeing that God is good, we learn to trust him and follow him. And the Bible shows us how to follow him. I like something that, I like another thing that Richard Foster says in his book um, when he's talking about study. He says, we don't come to the scripture to be changed. Sorry, we come to the scripture to be changed, not to amass information. We don't just want information. We want the truth to set us free. And so we study the word, we meditate on it, we memorize it, and we apply it to our lives. And studying God's word is so important because we need to, to know what it means before we can apply it to our lives. Um, when I was younger, I didn't know that. I, I read the Bible and my first thought was always, how do I apply this to myself? Um, instead of first, what does this mean? What is the context? And then sometimes there's not a direct application. Um, if you read the, the church fathers, like second or fifth century people, Augustine, Arrhenius, Origen, some of their commentary on the Bible is so out there, it's so allegorical, meaning they try to make application out of everything. And, and they really stretch the meaning at times, and we shouldn't do that. We need to understand what the Bible is saying, but sometimes, again, it's not 
directly applicable. Sometimes there's no command. There's just principles that we can apply. For example, the story of David and Goliath has been used so many times to show how we can overcome the giants of our lives. Goliath is turned into this allegory for different difficult situations that we must overcome. Sometimes the five stones that David picked up are, are allegorized to have some kind of meaning for us. And I don't think the original audience would have understood it that way. When we look at the context of 1 Samuel, this is a story about God choosing David to bring salvation to his people. It contrasts the, the people's king, Saul, with God's chosen king, David. It foreshadows what Jesus would do for us by providing salvation. God is the hero of the story, not David. Can God use us for great things like he did David? Absolutely. But my point is we need to be very careful to understand what's actually happening, what's actually being said. We need to understand the context before we can apply it to our lives. I realize there are things in God's word that are hard to understand, but thankfully we have so many resources to help us. So when you sit down to study the Bible, you can pull up a commentary on the passage that you're reading. You can Google search for Greek or Hebrew Bibles that actually literally translate the English above each word. They're called interlinear, interlinear Bibles. They're, they're free. You can, you can look up anything. And those help us understand. Because, because of the internet, there's so many resources. But I would be very careful. Um, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I'd be careful with just a general Google search. Um, anyone can have a website, right? So, um, but one of my best, one of my favorite, and I think one of the best websites that answers questions about the Bible is gotquestions.org. I don't know if you guys have ever come across that website, but they have a ton of stuff. It's, it's solid. They've answered, um, again, just a ton of questions that people have about the Bible. Okay, so study took up most of our time today, but I, I quickly want to talk about one other discipline, the discipline of fasting. And this is something we're, gonna, we're going to try in a couple weeks. Um, Fasting is not actually commanded in Scripture, but it, it is applied. It is implied. It's not talked about that much because it was already a common practice. Um, it's assumed that as a follower of God, you fasted. In Matthew 9, verses 5 and 6, it says, Then the disciples of John came to him, came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus didn't have his disciples fast while, while he was with them, and he explains why. Emmanuel, which means God with us, Emmanuel was with them, God incarnate. And so if fasting is meant to draw us closer to God, there was no need to fast when he was living among them. Jesus does teach a little bit of, about fasting. In Matthew 6, 
He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who, who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus assumed that everyone fasted. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy. And he closes by saying, your father will reward you. We don't, we don't fast for a reward, but we do practice fasting like any other spiritual discipline to put ourselves in a place to receive from God, to draw near to him. So what is fasting? Well, Richard Foster says throughout scripture, Fasting refers to abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. So typically fasting is from food, but we can also fast from other things like entertainment, internet, TV, our phone. Fasting is denying ourselves something that we think we need. <laughs> it's supposed to be challenging to the point of weakness, where we struggle with the temptation to give in to our appetite. Fasting is a personal choice to endure struggle. Um, we, we are purposely putting ourselves in an uncomfortable situation where we will be tempted to give in. So what happens when we fast? Well, if you're a coffee drinker, have you ever tried to stop for a while? What happens? You're probably going to be a little grumpy, right? That's what fasting does. It, it tests us. Um, and, and so you expect to be a little grumpy. When Bora and I first started this diet, we were not a happy couple. <laughs> um, fasting makes us uncomfortable. In fact, it makes us weak. That's, that's a part of the reason we do it. If we fast from food, we become physically weaker. So we are putting ourselves in a place of weakness on purpose. Why would we do that? Well, we do it in order to, put our, to place ourselves, again, in a place where we can receive from God. So fasting goes hand in hand with prayer. It goes hand in hand with meditation. If we're fasting, we need some kind of food. We need the strength to get through. We need to get strength from somewhere, we, or else we're just going to give in, right? And so we go to God for strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because God says in verse 9 of that same passage, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He's saying this to Paul, but it's a principle that we can all apply. It's a truth that we can all uh, take. So we're purposely putting ourselves in a place of weakness. Paul says in Romans 3, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering often isn't a choice. It doesn't come when we expect it. We don't invite it. But with fasting, we actually do invite suffering. 
Because again, it's a struggle. It gets easier as we continue in it, but initially it's, it's hard. So fasting makes us weak, but it also reveals weaknesses in us. And, and it may, may show us how our contentment depends on our circumstances. Fasting may make you really angry. It may bring the worst out in you. It's revealing your weaknesses. But that will or should lead us to prayer, to get down on our knees and to ask God for strength. We also often receive spiritual nourishment when we fast. After Jesus speaks with the woman at the well, the disciples return, and it says in John 4, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We find spiritual nourishment in God's will, in doing God's will. We're not commanded to fast, but we're commanded to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Maybe fasting can be included in that if it's leading us to to seek him in prayer and through his word. Foster says that fasting is feasting. When when our our purpose in fasting is is to grow in our walk with God, to grow closer to him, to engage him in a deeper way, then we are feasting because when we seek him with all our heart, he says that we will find him. And I'll close this by pointing out what fasting is not. We don't earn God's favor by fasting or by practicing any of these spiritual disciplines. They are simply a way, again, of putting ourselves in a position to receive from him. We may not always receive something from him, but we practice them to humble ourselves and to seek God, and in his grace, he works in our hearts. We also don't fast to compel God to act. I've seen people fast in order to get an answer from God um, about something. Fasting doesn't guarantee that. But I wouldn't put it past God when we go to him in prayer, when we're humbly seeking him, we will find him. But we need to understand that fasting just puts us in a place of humility and weakness. Often what it does do is show us our need to rely on him more. And often it changes our perspective, especially towards the will of God. Lastly, fasting is not a way to honor God because we're intentionally suffering. We don't beat ourselves or literally crucify ourselves um, like some do in South America to honor God. That's not honoring God. We honor him by living for him, living in his will, not torturing ourselves and showing what good Christians we are. Again, all of these disciplines are a way to humble ourselves before him and to seek him. The only growth we experience is because we encounter him we have opened ourselves up to his transforming grace. So I set out to do a brief overview of the rest of all the spiritual disciplines, but we've really only covered three here (laughs) this morning. And so I realize um, we'll have to look at the rest of them another day. 
but we're 100% going to be back in John next week um, because I've tried to line everything up with Easter, and we can't afford to miss another Sunday. So as much as I'd love to continue with the spiritual disciplines, we have to pause here and hopefully cover the rest of them in the summer. But in conclusion, we practice these spiritual disciplines because we want to know God and we want to experience him. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want to know him in a deeper way. Not just know about him, although that's part of it, but know him, actually commune with him. The spiritual disciplines replace destructive habits with life-giving habits because we often have to give up things in order to practice them. When we do nothing, when we aren't seeking the Lord, we're slipping farther away from him. Because again, our bent, is to, our bent in the world is always going to be to the flesh. It's to indulging self, the sinful nature. And so we seek God by engaging in these spiritual disciplines, prayer, reading God's word, studying it and meditating on it. These are, these are the most important things that we can do. But then we can also put ourselves into a position, a place to receive from God through other disciplines like fasting, simplicity, solitude, worship, and celebration. Often these things go hand in hand with prayer and with reading the word. But it, it's all about putting ourselves in a position to receive his grace. Not earning it, but being open to it by, by seeking him out. We seek God out through the spiritual disciplines. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that seeking you out is not just an abstract thing. We can come to you in prayer. We can hear from you through your word. We can experience living for you when we practice these spiritual disciplines, when we carve out time for meaningful prayer and study, when we're fasting from things like entertainment or food or, or coffee even, it shows us how weak we are, how much we need to rely on you. I thank you for your, for your, your people and the wisdom and the insight that you've blessed people who've gone before us with. They've written down these insights and wisdom, and we can learn how to better follow you by reading and studying what they've written. But even more than that, we are blessed to be able to study your word. In the 21st century, we have more time for leisure than ever before, and yet you are the one we really find rest in. Help us to use that time that you've given us to dig into your word to go to you in prayer, to intercede for family and friends and those around us. These are the kinds of things that you call us to do. Your son set an example for us here on earth, and so we ask for patience and for strength to follow his example. We, we thank you for your patience towards us. Guide us and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.